Welcome to episode four of EW's Binge of Harry Potter. I'm Mark Snedeker. And I'm Molly Smith. And today, we are not just your hosts. We are your Triwizard Tournament judges. Coming at you for the first time in 200 years, ready to kill some wizards, ready to test your metal and your strength and your intelligence and give you some riddles and a hedge maze. All uh, that fun stuff. You and your riddles. Love I a know riddle. there's stuff ahead. Love a hedge maze, love a Triwizard Tournament. Today's episode is, of course, all about Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, the fourth book in the series, the fourth movie in the series. Um, we're kind of halfway through we're through the books. And this is really a big turning point for the series. This is huge. Also, this is the title in the series when everyone coalesced in the sense that all three books sort of came out at different times in the UK and the US. This, there was one release date, July 8th, 2000, the whole world got Goblet of Fire that first day, and the same could not be said for those other three books that came before it. So this movie doesn't come out until November 18th, 2005, and by then, Half-Blood Prince, the book, is already out. So just let that marinate for a second, what we know after book six, and then revisiting the fun of book four, even though the film is quite dark. It's, well, I feel like it has such a fun sort of adventurous energy throughout and then at the end is when it gets real dark and that's sort of setting the tone for the rest of the movies it definitely takes a triwizard turn a a (laughs) big old turn so today we of course have a very special guest we are so excited to welcome victor crumb himself stanislav ianevsky as well as costume designer jenny tamim who is going to tell us all about what it was like to design the costumes of the Wizarding World, including Hermione's Yule Ball dress. Mm-hmm. And she talks a little bit about Voldemort, and she loves him. She loves a baddie. Until then, we are going to run through Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire with the 10 biggest disasters. Oh, my God. This one's tri- just full of turmoil. Full of turmoil. The 10 biggest disasters of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. So disaster number 10 is, of course, the death of Frank Bryce, the caretaker. So we, yeah, we start off real strong with with quite a big disaster for a lot of people, primarily Frank Bryce, who, you know, well, luckily it was short and sweet. Essentially, we're not going to spend too much time talking about this disaster until the end of the book. But Frank Bryce is the caretaker of the old riddle slash like gaunt estate. You know, mm-hmm. Tom Riddle's family history is this whole convoluted thing. Frank Bryce was actually accused of the murder of the Riddle family when really it was Voldemort. But um, he remains on as the gardener. And one night he sees a light on in the old Riddle house thinking it's just young boys coming to play. He goes up and finds that it is Voldemort or whatever form Voldemort has he's kind of in like armchair mode at this point yeah he's still like not a fully realized human being he's like this weird little creature like a like a big fetus yeah oh god so he's there with Barty Crouch Jr. with Wormtail with his girl Nagini oh love me some Nagini they're talking about their plan for the year long story short poor Frank Poor Frank makes the mistake of seeing Nagini in a hallway and she rats on him Mm -hmm. or like snakes out on him. Nagini's got a big old mouth. And boom, Frank Bryce is dead. And that sets into motion 
our story. So we're we're not going to see Voldemort again for a while, but um, but he's sure he's out back. there. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget uh, the beginning of of this book and this movie. Um, it's the first time we really uh, start with something so insane as a Voldemort chapter. Well, and also, we've talked about in the past how the movies have sort of eased us into murder. Now we're in straight-up murder (laughs) territory. You know, I mean, of course, there have been flashbacks to Lily and James and everything, but the first thing you see in this is Frank getting killed. And I feel like it's especially effective because Voldemort is nowhere to be seen in Prisoner of Azkaban. So now he's really coming back with a bang. Yeah, literal bang, literal vada cadaver up in this. So, yeah, that's disaster number 10. Disaster number nine finally brings our characters into the picture. In the film, specifically, Harry wakes up from this sort of dream about Frank Bryce, and he's already at this next place, which is the Quidditch World Cup. Obviously, this is different in the book, but just for the sake of the movie, Harry and his friends are going to the Quidditch World Cup. Harry's already at the borough. Hermione's there. They're waking up super early to go travel and see all of their friends who can afford a ticket, Mm -hmm. um, which is not everyone. The way they get there, of course, is by port keys. And this is our introduction to a new little bit of magic that I love called a port key. Port keys you only use if you can't apparate, you want to travel by daylight. So you can't use a broom. You can't use a, you know, other such creature. And if you have no fireplace, which, uh, sorry, flu people, but you know what? This is this is your other option. Make a port key of an inanimate object, and you're there. But anyway, their port key to the Quidditch World Cup is uh, an old boot set up by Amos Diggory and his son Cedric. And suddenly they're at the Quidditch World Cup. And it's exciting. I love these bits of sort of culture that come into the Harry Potter series, like seeing what they go nuts over. Yeah. So this is our first exposure to the international wizarding community. The Quidditch World Cup is held every four years since 1473. I admittedly have just a passing knowledge about Quidditch through the ages. I I can't say that sports are my thing. I imagine if Quidditch was real, I probably would not play it. <laughs> I, I say it. I would play it, but I say I would play it and I say I would watch it, but like, let's be honest, I wouldn't. So this 1994 Quidditch World Cup that Harry and the Weasleys and the Malfoys and everyone basically attends is between Ireland and Bulgaria. In the book, Harry supports Bulgaria, but in the movie, everybody just loves Ireland. And of course, on the Bulgarian Quidditch team is Victor Crumb. Anyway, moving on, um, what is... A very fun event soon takes a very dark mark turn. Oh, yeah. And so they're all hanging out, celebrating the game and everything. And then things kind of get a little rowdy and they think it's the Irish, but it's not the Irish. It's some Death Eaters. More smart. That's how you cast a dark mark. The dark mark, of course, is Voldemort's signature <laughs> look. I love that he created his own spell to, you know, he it, it's a it's kind of like half tattoo, half you know, bat signal. It's a it's a very intricate design, but all of his followers have it and it is at the Quidditch World Cup that this first really scary sort of terrorist attack happens where the death eaters throw it up in the air and um yeah, it's a real it's a real uh it's kind of the ultimate FU just to the world. It's like we're here I also I It's always, the ultimate FU, but it's the ultimate sort of foreboding symbol. You know, like you know that things are gonna get especially dark here because of it. Totally. Everybody runs. Other interesting things about the dark mark, my favorite thing about it is that Hermione actually uses this for good. 
Um, she is inspired by the dark mark and the sort of, I'm not going to call it technology, but the idea of creating a signal for oneself, as Voldemort did to his followers. Um, she uses the dark mark as inspiration in the next book, book five, when she creates coins, special coins for the members of Dumbledore's army. Mm -hmm. And she uses that same magic, that same charm to make them heat up to signal that a meeting is happening. Very clever, that girl. Yeah. And Fred and George also make an edible dark mark in their store yeah. just for fun. So I like that we sort of take back the mark. <laughs> so that's the Quidditch World Cup. Big disaster. Huge disaster. Huge disaster. Um, so after the Quidditch World Cup, the gang all head to Hogwarts. And at Hogwarts, Dumbledore announces that there's going to be a very big competition this year. And this is just the eighth biggest disaster. All in, umbrella, the Tri-Wizard Tournament. <laughs> Let's, we're just going to call this disaster number eight. Um, and the, everything that falls under it falls under this. The Goblet of Fire, huge disaster. One of the biggest in Harry Potter. Yeah, because the Goblet of Fire, of course, is what... I mean, it's not technically responsible, but it calls Harry's name to make him the fourth competitor in the Triwizard Tournament when there's really only supposed to be three. So let's explain what the Triwizard Tournament is. Um, it is. It was established in the year 1294 as a friendly competition um, that's supposed to inspire cooperation and relationships between the three biggest wizarding schools in Europe um, every five years. Over 700 years... A lot of people died. So the Triwizard Tournament has frequently been canceled and then frequently rebooted. Hogwarts has won 63 times, so kudos to us. But the last we heard of it, it was stopped in 1792 after basically all of the judges were attacked by a cockatrice. Molly, do you know what a cockatrice is? No, please explain. It has a snake tail, two legs and the wings of a dragon, and a bird head. That's uh, something I would not want to face. Yeah, so that's why the Triwizard Tournament was canceled. Also, I love how like ancient mythology is always just like, you know, look at these, look at these weird things. Like, like I would just like to make my own creature and just be like, yeah, this is a myth. Like, yeah. here's <laughs> here's a pigtail, like half of a fish, and the face of the dogs that look like Judith Light. Oh my god. <laughs> so like, there, that's a new myth. J.K. Rowling. Is you're that welcome. your Patronus? That, that's definitely not my Patronus. <laughs> but anyway, in 1994. Guess what gets a reboot? Everybody loves a reboot. It's the Triwizard Tournament reboot. Mm -hmm. And the same three schools are back. There's Hogwarts, there's Durmstrang, and there's Bobaton. Or Bobaton. And I actually it, don't know. Molly, talk to us about Durmstrang. What is the Durmstrang Institute? Ooh, well, Durmstrang, they've got a reputation on them. Um, they actually have the darkest reputation of all 11 wizarding schools. But how much of that is really sort of worth its salt? Up in the air. Debatable. Right. The, the whole reason they have a bad reputation is because Durmstrang teaches dark magic actively. Um, but that's only the fault of one person, this this old headmaster named Harfung Munter. Um, oh, God. So, yeah, no wonder why name. they have a bad rep, because he was their <laughs> spokesman. But the other two famous people to come out of Durmstrang, well, three. There's Victor Crumb, of course, who is the Durmstrang champion here. And he's the one that's sort of giving them a better reputation. He's a Squidditch yeah, he champion, you know. But the face. other two people who have really dragged Durmstrang through the uh, mud are Igor Karkaroff, who we meet here. He is the headmaster. Turns out he's an old Death Eater. And at the end of this book, when Voldemort does come back, he flees and kind of puts a little... <laughs> dark mark, if you will, on the school. Mm -hmm. um, but it's 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 a it's a worse dark mark. It's an emotional dark mark. The other guy 
who has put a pox on the school, of course, is Gellert Grindelwald. And he's somebody who we're going to get into later. Yeah, we'll talk about him in book seven. Final things about Durmstrang. They don't accept Muggleborns. Contrary to what you might think in the movie, it is not an all-boys school. And from what I glean, everyone gets a stick. <laughs> and they all know like gymnastics and fire yes. breathing and their entrance, all of that. Their entrance at this like opening ceremony is like this really cool, it's kind of like stomp a little bit, a little blue man group mm-hmm. minus the blue, just exactly. the man group. Now, Bo Batten, Academy of Magic. This, so delightful. So delightful, so pretty. Not, again, not an all-girls school. I'm not quite sure why the films decided to just make it. I mean, maybe they just thought it would make it easier to accept, but it, that's not true. There are Bobatin boys. There are Durmstrang girls. Yeah, speaking of Bobatin boys, Nicholas Flamel was a student there, famous and, alum. And supposedly he and his wife put in a lot of money, <laughs> a yeah. lot of gold as uh, the immortal people they are. They were good donors. So there are a lot of Flamel-named buildings at Bobatin. It is in the French mountains. It takes the more romantic countries like Belgium and Luxembourg and Portugal and Spain. It is a stunning French palace, and there's supposedly a fountain named for the Flamels that has healing and beauty properties, which explains why everyone at Bobatin is absolutely gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Also, because like there are several people there who are a species called Vila. Including Fleur Delacour, she who is, is a Triwizard contestant for the school. She is a half Vila. A Vila is basically just like a semi-human beautiful woman. It's kind of like a, a siren in Greek mythology. Anyway, their entrance choreography, um, <laughs> under the rule of the gigantic Madame Maxime. They just kind of float. They, they kind of float. float. They open their arms like birds fly out. They're like, ah. It's kind of like an Enchanted when Amy Adams gets lifted by birds. There's a Snow White quality to Bobatin, whereas Durmstrang is more of like Jafar. What? <laughs> you know? And then we have That's... Hogwarts, which is basically Abu. I don't know. I have two Aladdins and Snow White. Um, um, I'm going to need you to expand on that Abu comparison Hogwarts, you're making here. <laughs> poor, poor, silly Hogwarts. This movie really opens your eyes that the school we've been tracking is actually just like the the bastard child of wizarding schools. Our entrance choreography, or there is none. Well, there is no entrance. They're choreography. just sitting there. Our participation in the welcome ceremony after these dances and these like floral arrangements is we sing the Hogwarts theme song. Our choir, which we never see again, is just embarrassing. Yeah, that's and, pretty bad. But that's not the most embarrassing thing we do. No, the most embarrassing thing we do is have two contestants in the Triwizard <sighs> tournament. Awkward. And that's Cedric Diggory. He was the first of Hogwarts to be called, and everybody's super stoked. Yeah, the the sort of big disaster of, of right now is that the Goblet of Fire spews out Harry's name on like a piece of janky notebook paper. And because it constitutes a binding magical agreement, which Harry didn't enter, so I don't understand if it's so magical, you know, it, shouldn't it be like, no, that like that's not his handwriting like what is magical about a binding agreement if someone's name is in that's not anyway harry stuck during tournament and that casts a uh a dark shadow over the rest of the year so now as he waits for the inevitable first task of the triwizard tournament is when he gets into some uh hot water with some of the things that come along with uh the triwizard tournament including a new teacher professor moody alistair moody Ex-order. 
Ministry malcontent and your new defence against the dark arts teacher. I am here because Dumbledore asked me. End of story. Goodbye. The end. Any questions? And that brings us to number seven, which is Professor Mad-Eye Moody. And at this point in the story, um, we're seeing what his teaching style is like. He's gruff. He's a gruff human being, but he's also kind of aggressive with his students. Right. And we're not even going (laughs) to... I mean, we all know that Mad-Eye Moody is actually not Mad-Eye Moody, but for the purposes of this, (laughs) he is Mad-Eye Moody. And naturally, because he is really a Death Eater impersonating Mad-Eye Moody... He decides to use this Defense Against the Dark Arts opportunity to teach the kids about the unforgivable curses, which is a disastrous class in and of itself. Molly, take us through what happens in this Defense Against the Dark Arts class. So in this class, Mad-Eye teaches his students the three unforgivable curses, which are the Imperious Curse, which is when you make somebody do exactly what you want to do. And it starts out really funny. He's kind of toying with the spider, putting it on like Draco's face and everything. Funny-ish. The students are laughing. If I saw a spider flying around, I mean, I would be out of there. Yeah, but so, and then it takes a very dark turn. He starts trying to make it drown, and it's just like, oh, God, it's, I don't like spiders, but I don't like watching that happen to spiders. Yeah, that spell is Imperio, which is Latin for I command, Mm. which makes sense because it is the sort of mind control, if you will. Not mind control, but just like entirety control. Force. And a lot of people, uh claim they were under the influence of the Imperious Curse when bad things happen. They're like, oh my god, I didn't do it. Like, Imperious Curse. Can you imagine if it's like, Molly, like, why were you late for brunch? Oh my god, oh sorry, my god. Imperious Curse. You know. <laughs> Imperious like, Curse made me sleep in like half an hour past my alarm. Oh my I don't god. know. <laughs> Imperious. Oh my god. Oh, okay. All right. Next is the Cruciatus Curse, which is when you inflict excruciating pain on your victim. And this one's even harder to watch than the first. Yeah, this is the Torture Curse. And There's no real sort of (laughs) explanation for the scientific sensations that you go through when you're just being tortured. It's just agony or, as you said, excruciating, which is where the word come from. Crucio, think crucifixion. Um, It is Latin for I torture, crucio. And the most famous people who have been tortured by this curse are Alice and Frank Longbottom. So the second Moody starts doing this to that poor spider who's writhing around in pain and squealing out of some sort of sound-making uh, output that I don't know a spider has. Yeah. But um, Neville starts to get some some bad flashbacks to his oh, parents. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah, but not as bad as uh, the third curse that Moody then teaches them. Avada Kedavra! The killing curse. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Avada Kedavra, which um, is... J.K. Rowling has explained is born from the word we know, abracadabra, which is a silly word, which actually turns out means let the thing be destroyed. It was originally supposed to be about illness as the thing, and Rowling just decided, no, the thing is people. So that's what she did. And um, the takeaway, of course, in this class is that one, now we know the unforgivable curses, like fully. We always knew about cadaver, but now we know the other two. And two, poor Neville. Poor Neville. So if there was sad. ever a Neville spinoff, which I would love, we would learn all about his parents, who are always just sort of like just beyond what we know. We all we just know a little bit about Frank and Alice Longbottom, horrors who are in St. Mungo's. They were tortured. Poor Neville. He lives with Gran. But uh, tell me you wouldn't watch the Neville and Gran show. Oh, I absolutely would. But it's like dark. Cue it up. Let's move on. Disaster number six in Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire is, of course, the first task. Um, 
Harry does get a heads up, so it's not as big of a disaster as it could have been. It's still, it ain't no easy thing. Right, it's pretty disastrous. It's, essentially, it's so big and so scary that it soothes the fight between Ron and Harry because Ron realizes nobody would possibly put their name voluntarily into this thing. One thing I do hate about the movie is that it really botches the makeup between Ron and Harry because in the book, um, it's it's wordless. It's uh, Harry just instantly forgets his anger towards Ron and Hermione starts crying and I start crying as well. But in the movie, they kind of apologize in the common room and Harry's still a little bitter. But anyway, that's just my thing. Mm. Um, so this is on November 24th of 1994, uh, right around Thanksgiving, so super crisp out. And Harry, of course, beats his dragon with the help of Accio, uh, he gets his broom, and it's just genius. He gets the golden egg and saves the day. But Molly. Oh, no. Is it happening? I have a game for no! you. No! Molly <laughs> has come to hate my games, but you know what? I have come to enjoy them. I'm just like Ludo Bagman. I'm the game maker. This you know? is like its own form of torture. Absolutely. So, Molly, <laughs> we're going to play a game inspired by the first task. Okay. It's, a, it's educational. It's a little game I like to call Dragon or Drag Queen. <laughs> I have a. All right, I'm excited. Let's do this. I have a list of names, and you have to tell me if they are a breed of dragon in the Harry Potter series or the name of a famous drag queen. I'm ready. Are you ready? Bring it. Okay, Molly, dragon or drag queen? Hungarian horntail. Dragon. Chinese fireball. Dragon. Ginger minge. Drag queen. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sahara Davenport. Drag queen. Yes. Ukrainian Iron Belly. Oh. Um, dragon. Yep. Okay. Hebridean Black. Say that one more time. Hebridean Black. Oh, this is a tricky, tricky drag queen. No, dragon. Oh. Swedish Short Snout. Dragon. Latrice Royale. Drag queen. Yes. <laughs> I'm just trying to chip you up. Um, cookie buffet. Drag queen? Yeah. Okay. Can you imagine? <laughs> Romanian longhorn. Dragon. Antipodian opali. Oh, say it again. Antipodian opali. Dragon? Yeah. Okay. Manila luzon. Drag queen. Damn. Yeah. Um, and the last one. Vaginal Davis. Drag queen. I would hope so. <laughs> all right, Molly, you got you got um, almost Wait, all right. This was so much better than Gilderoy or Gilderong. Yeah, you got a lot of those Gilderong. <laughs> but congrats, you are now the master of dragon or drag queen. I'm putting it on my LinkedIn. Endorse me. And I think we all learned a lot about dragons today. Yes, we and, did. And drag queens. <laughs> all right, Molly, take us into number five. Biggest Disasters in Goblet oh, of Fire. This I'm, is another person. Number five on our list is Rita Skeeter, journalist of the Daily Prophet. And she's very... Journalist is like a loose term Yeah, that's here. true. She's a uh, gossip of the Daily Prophet. Yeah, she's like... Uh, she's very like clickbait reporter. So she would fit in quite well on Twitter, I gotta tell you. <laughs> but so Rita, she's stirring up trouble left and right during this tournament. She's writing about how... Harry is just in search of eternal glory, kind of an attention whore, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, She brings in Hermione when mm -hmm. Hermione pisses her off. Um, She just has nothing 
positive or accurate to say about these people. Nothing. Nothing. Um, a little fun stuff about Rita Skeeter because, uh, you know, the disaster here is all the crap she writes and puts out into the world about Harry, which are all lies. Um, but I think there are some fun facts about her that uh, I would like to get into. Um, she's 43, a hot 43. Very. And supposedly, based on that time, that means she was in Hogwarts in 1951, which would suggest that she went to Hogwarts the same time as Bellatrix Lestrange. Interesting. Now, we don't know Rita's house, but I'm going to have to guess it's Slytherin. Yeah, but we also thought that Gilderoy would be... A Slytherin. A and he Slytherin. was a Ravenclaw. He's a Ravenclaw, and I could also maybe see that for her. But if she, I mean, she is really smart. You have to be that smart to be that evil. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not that she's ambitious, but she is cunning. I don't know. She is an unregistered animagus. Um, she turns into a beetle, which says a lot about her personality. Mm-hmm. Two things about this. One, this wasn't in the movie, which was super sad that this twist didn't make the cut because... It's supposed to be like, how does she know all this? And yep, she's listening in because she's a beetle. But two, I love that that trope wasn't overused in the series. Um, a lot of people. You mean of Animagus and how that helps yeah, people get ahead? Totally. Like she's a beetle. She can hear things that they're not supposed to hear. Think of how many secret conversations Harry has that would be really damaging if anyone else heard them. Absolutely. J.K. Rowling never employed this again as far as. Um, you know, she found other ways, like Fred and George's extendable ears, the invisibility cloak. Yeah. There are other ways to listen in on conversations you're not supposed to hear. And I like that this was used very sparingly. Rita Skeeter, other fun facts, she was banned from the castle after this book, which is not surprising. Um, her name was originally Bridget. She was originally supposed to appear in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone in the Leaky Cauldron when Harry first gets there. And right. can you imagine... Like, can you imagine her pouncing on him, this poor boy of 11? Oh, the damage she could have done. Yeah. J.K. Rowling wisely decided to save her until she said fame had started to oppress him. She suits it here. She, yeah. It's it's a lot better to have her here now um, than exploit the fame early on. Although I totally understand why that character was conceived that way, because Harry is famous and he needs to learn how famous he is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then last thing on Rita Skeeter, Rowling has revealed that after the series ends, what became of her? Well, she said, quote, I imagine she immediately dashed off a biography of Harry after he defeated Voldemort. One quarter truth to three quarters rubbish. Oh, absolutely. If that. Totally. But like, can't you imagine? She definitely did a Harry series. She definitely did Hermione. We should also get into a little bit of the Daily Prophet here. Uh, Just in case you didn't know, it's the only newspaper in Britain that serves wizards. Um, It's... I mean, you know, forget the Quibbler, forget which weekly. Those are just, those don't have the same circulation. It's like the true newspaper yeah. of the wizarding world. It has the headquarters in Diagon Alley. Um, they do the evening profit for for big rush jobs because this is a 24-hour news cycle, even in the wizarding world. So Brangelina gets divorced. And this hear is the 90s, the too. Profit. They were cranking it out before things really stepped up, you yeah. know? And, and the Daily Prophet is shady. You know, it's literally called The Prophet. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, like, Rita publishes false stuff all the time, and the ministry heavily uh, has to do with it. I just like this last quote that J.K. Rowling has said about The Daily Prophet. It's kind of like the ultimate F.U. to anyone who ever said, oh, well, why doesn't Harry use the internet? Uh, uh, like, <laughs> you know, like, how many times have you gotten into that conversation with people like us who were like, well, why wouldn't they just, like, use a cell phone? So Rowling said this about the reason wizards still use newspapers. 
It seems likely that Wizards will continue to favor old-fashioned newsprint, even while the muggle world resorts increasingly to the internet. If muggle newspapers had moving photographs, their circulation might be similarly buoyant. Ooh, that's a good comeback if I ever heard one. It's just a burn. Moving on, we're now into the final four. The fourth biggest disaster in Goblet of Fire. And this is also, this is not your typical disaster, but it's the Yule Ball. This is a hormonal disaster. Yeah, (laughs) this is like preteen nightmare disaster. This is the ceremonial dance that goes along with the Triwizard Tournament. The Yule Ball is a big Christmas dance, and it is a disaster because Harry and Ron, up until now, they're just, they're idiots. They're romantic idiots, and they're so bad at asking dates that they end up with basically... None. I mean, they do get dates. They get uh, the Patil sisters. But really, they're so terrible to those girls. and They don't deserve them. The Patils deserve so much better. I Absolutely. don't even know why they didn't get dates before Harry and Ron. Well, interestingly, Floor took Roger Davies, who was the uh, Ravenclaw Quidditch captain. And Crum took Hermione. So all, both of the visitors took uh, Hogwarts students. Uh, yeah. All the champions took Hogwarts, Hogwarts students are hot. Yeah. Now, wh- who do you think was the best couple at the Yule Ball? Fun fact, not a single one of these couples remains together at the end of the series. That's so true. there is no everlasting love at this dance. Mm, I, I, while I feel like Victor and Hermione are not very well suited to each other, I just like them together because it kind of taught Ron a lesson. Yeah. Although he, the fact that she shows up as like his prize in the second task it's like you just met. You've been you've known each other a couple months. This is not a shotgun task. <laughs> um, I did like Victor and Hermione because like he's so not the type she should be going for, um, or she would be going for. I love Cedric and Cho. I think they would have made couple. a much better couple than Harry and yeah. Cho. Neville and Ginny, I was into. Um, um, I also love Dumbledore and McGonagall dancing together. Love it. And Filch and Mrs. Norris dancing together. That's A+. plus. That's just creepy. <laughs> and then Draco and Pansy, who uh, they should have uh, been together. My favorite thing about the Yule Ball, though, real talk, is the Weird Sisters. They were the band at the Yule Ball. And Mark, I know you have some feelings. I love the idea of out. bands at Hogwarts or bands in the Wizarding World because we only know of two. We know of the Weird Sisters and we know of Celestina Warbeck, who I like to imagine is kind of like the Celine Dion of the Wizarding she World. She definitely would have a Vegas show. But she might be more, I don't know if it's Celine Dion or if it's like Lady Gaga. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. Either way, they're the two most famous. The Weird Sisters play the Yule Ball. They play like Do the Hippogriff and they're all really hairy, super strange, but... I just always wondered what the hell the rest of the story is about these people. Like, if you're in a band, did you drop out of Hogwarts? Like, did you practice in the room of requirement? What's sort of the next step? So, yeah, Yulval, disaster. I love the little hints of Ron being jealous of Hermione. This is really sort of... I mean, like, we've had, like, tiny bits of it before, tiny inklings. I think there was a little hand graze that happened in Azkaban. But this is when you really start to see feelings of developing between Ron and Hermione. Yeah, because like any sort of friendship, you don't necessarily realize until you're jealous. It's like a toy you can't have. So here, for the first time ever, Hermione wants to be seen as a woman in front of Ron. And and she is. She's rocking that pink dress. Yeah, Jenny, who, to me, the costume designer who we'll talk to later in this episode, she has some great stuff to say about this dress and this, this look for Hermione, this debut. But um, Ron realizes he's jealous and he acts out. And then in book six, when Ron gets together with Lavender, Hermione realizes she's jealous. And 
it's just like a nice, you know, way in. And, you know, yep. we, we talked about whether or not J.K. Rowling knew from the very first scene that Ryan and Hermione were going to get together. If she wasn't planning it from the first scene and she didn't know it in book three. Here. I mean, she knew it now. I, but, like, listen, she knew it all along. But here's so. where she's really playing into it. But I do think you see bits of jealousy from – or not jealousy, but you, you see some – anger from Hermione too because when Ron lashes out she's not thinking about the fun time she had with Victor she's thinking about how Ron's how Ron didn't being... ask her how dare you besides I can take care of myself Dow, he's way too old what what that's what you think yeah, that's what I think you know the solution then don't you go on next time there's a ball pluck up the courage and ask me before somebody else does and not as a last resort so yeah. it's really great. It's a great moment between Ron and Hermione in their overall arc. One of the defining moments, really. Anyway, moving on. Top three. And we're now we're in the top three disasters, and we're just now getting to the second task. I recognize that, but... It's because I, this book and movie is just loaded with crazy. Yeah, it's really just task, crazy stuff, task, crazy stuff, task. But for our purposes, the second task is uh, the third biggest disaster, and it starts with this damn golden egg that Harry had to rescue from the dragon. He has no idea how to figure out what clue it holds. He opens it up. It is just a scream. Honestly, it sounds like Taylor Swift without the vocalizer. And, um, oh, there he, we go. He finally wises up to how to crack haha, this egg mm. um, by being directed by Cedric to go to the prefect's bathroom which is the most extravagant bathroom i've ever seen yeah i would like to have a spa day in that bathroom for sure there are like 30 faucets a lot of different colors hang out with myrtle which how windows. relaxing is that though yeah mm. myrtle proves here that she's not just haunting the girls bathroom like she's just the bathroom ghost i i know you like to say oh i died here that's why i stayed here like no you have a thing for bathrooms she has a thing for bathrooms and she's also creepy she's super creepy she's creeping on them boys yeah she's going underwater harry's taking that egg to block his other eggs and uh it's basically <laughs> it's gross but he does open the egg in the prefect's bathroom um, and this is where he finds out that the next task is going to be at the lake. Yeah, because he hears a song, which I always wondered, like, who gets that solo? Celestina Warbeck. <laughs> like, whoever the most popular mermaid is, is like, guys, I got this one. I'm going to sing the clue for Hogwarts. <laughs> so, yeah. Now we're in the lake. The Great Lake is disgusting. And oh, yeah. clearly... Something you'll sorely miss is in the lake, and they have to go and retrieve it. Okay. So, poor Harry. He, he'll miss everybody. And I do hate that he kind of sticks around to get Floor's sister, Gabrielle, because I'm like, they weren't going to let her die. Like, but were they? Would they have? I don't think they, I never thought they they were in in danger. I know Harry thought that, and then he got points for it. But like, the second Floor was disqualified. Shouldn't they have said like, well, let's go get Gabrielle? Like, or Maybe they didn't want to like interfere in the competition, but I don't know. They've said that people have died in this before, so. Yeah, but if I was, if I was recruited like Ron and Hermione were to be involved I would only do it on the stipulation that like that you'd live yeah (laughs) although I guess they all have to believe that their champion would would come through yeah but I don't know can you imagine like Flora is disqualified she's out half an hour early and then Dumbledore's just sitting there like oh man for for the next 30 minutes like something's gonna happen to your sister Goblet of Fire ends with that funeral not the other that we're gonna get into so sad Mm -hmm. anyway let's talk about what's inside this great lake of course, we have Grindy Lows, who are gross demons. You have the giant squid, 
which is gross, also gross squid. because yeah <laughs> it's giant it's a squid and apparently it lets kids touch its tentacles on sunny days that is yeah phallic. i have no interest in that <laughs> um and then you have the mer people uh who i love that they are so sassy that they have rejected the qualification of human they want to be known just as beasts and every once in a while they'll talk to humans as sort of the intelligent species that lives in the lake uh-huh. but um they're like no we're we're beasts. We're fantastic. Here's where you find us. Um, I just like that mer people aren't like, they aren't like sirens. You know what I mean? Like J.K. Rowling could have made them these gorgeous, beautiful, aerial esque mer people, and instead she made them these like half octopus, disgusting things with awful, awful teeth. I do find it interesting that the Hogwarts Lake apparently functions as something of a wildlife preserve for magical creatures that have a hard time living in Muggle areas, but mm-hmm. like. So you're going to make it hard for Hogwarts students like to go near the lake? Because right. that's not fun. Like, if I had a lake, I would like to swim in it. Dude, Hogwarts is just like that's a death a trap for everything. It really is. Fun fact, people were supposed to appear in Chamber of Secrets. Did you know that? I did, actually. Ron and Harry were supposed to fly the car into the lake, and that's how they were going to come across them. But... I, I think that would have been super fun. Forget the Whomping Willow. You know my thoughts on that. But the Willow is so important because it sets everything up for Azkaban. There's a lot of things that could have changed, but she still would have yeah. gotten to the same end. I love it. I hate the mer people, but uh, task two is, yeah, it's a disaster. It's an aquatic disaster, but at the end of the day, it's not so bad because Harry ends up tied for first place with Cedric um, as they enter the third task, which is disaster number two. The third task, the, the third, hedge maze. The hedge and I'm not maze. talking just about design and decor of that disaster. Like, this is not an HGTV disaster. This is a disaster of uh, death. I do feel bad for the audience in these tasks because, like, what are you really watching? After Nothing. the dragon, like, it's all downhill. You're watching a lake. Right. And you're watching <laughs> a hedge. I think the real disaster here is the viewing experience. Yeah. Yeah. No offense, Cedric. <laughs> but the real, yeah, the real disaster is that I paid this much. Anyway, yeah. third task, 20-foot-high hedge maze. Mad-Eye Moody, or who we think is Mad-Eye Moody, has hidden the cup, the Triwizard Cup, inside the maze. And this is the final step in Voldemort's plan to get Harry to... To the graveyard. To the graveyard, to his secret uh, death palace but the actual maze itself is really terrifying because you have victor crumb running around and he's cursed like trying to take everybody out so it's harry alone who makes it to the end yeah floor gets screwed and harry is so nice and sends up flares for her because he's a good guy cedric almost gets eaten by like vines by like the maze itself it's closing in on him in the book we also see more to this maze that we don't get to see in the film harry faces off with a boggart there's a blast ended scroot which is the worst creature in the potter series even though i don't know much about them there's a Sphinx with an obnoxious riddle. There's an Aquamantula that Harry and Cedric defeat together. Compared to the book, the maze doesn't seem that bad in the movie. Yeah, in the movie, seriously, it's just kind of like they should have treated the maze with the same time they treated like the campouts in Deathly Hallows Part 1. Because <laughs> like, the maze really should have taken a lot longer. But in the film, Harry saves Cedric and they both sort of just get to the end. The maze starts closing in, which forces them to run. And they both just decide to take the cup together, which... To be dual champions. You know what? Harry could have saved Cedric if he wasn't so damn nice. If he didn't insist that they touch it together. If he didn't save Cedric from those plants. What is the lesson to take away here, Mark? Like, <laughs> what are you getting at? The lesson to take away <laughs> is like, Harry, I get it. 
But you don't have to be so nice all the time because sometimes being nice kills people. All right. I'll take that point. And kill people <laughs> it does because once they grab the uh, cup, they go to the graveyard. The cup is a port key. It's a port key. Full Foreshadowing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's kind of like a palindrome because the book starts with the graveyard and then a port key. And now it's port key and graveyard. Exactly. So, yeah, we're in the graveyard near the Riddle House. Harry quickly realizes, oh, snap, we are actually in, Like, Voldemort's here. I know it. He sees the Riddle tombstones. And... um. And Harry's like, get back to the cup, but it's too it's late. It's too late. Pettigrew walks out, and Avada Kedavra's Cedric. Ugh. But something we didn't talk about, um, I really loved Cedric Diggory, and he was one of those fictional characters that I just Were you crushing? was too emotionally attached to. Like, I treated him like a real crush. I do wonder if that's the difference, though, in growing up reading Harry Potter. Was this one of your first sort of literary crushes like was this the mr darcy of harry potter oh yeah he was up there for sure interesting i cannot tell you how many like conversations my friends and i had about like cedric diggory versus edward cullen which it's obvious cedric diggory but yeah, i'm sorry one well one lives forever one lives not, not long forever <laughs> but um you know what he was great robert pattinson is the perfect cedric in the movie oh yeah although i wish he had more lines he just doesn't he, he doesn't say much lines. but like i love that brooding face so brooding know? and forever brooding <laughs> you know it's frozen in time it's a little bit scared so you know in the graveyard it's tough there's there's kind of a lot to unpack essentially i mean voldemort's back they have realized they need harry's blood wormtail throws this voldemort fetus into this cauldron he doesn't even like gently slip him in he literally drops him i think and there's an actual splash Pettigrew has a lot of angst that he's working through yeah he does i mean he's treated as such a lowly servant even though he is voldemort's most faithful and that says a lot about why he turned into such a crappy little creature but this is a, a really interesting scene it's Really, the first time Harry and Voldemort have come face to face, yeah, and not face to back of head face, <laughs> face to face to face, face to face to face the turban. No, this is when determined. Voldemort becomes a real human being again. Although he's not exactly human, but he's like a fully realized yeah. person. This was huge again. in the film to finally for to see I, what he's going to look like. Did you ever have an idea of what Voldemort really looked like before this moment in the movie? I don't think I did. I think I just kind of thought of him as like this sort of black blur. Yeah, you know, I, evil I just had blur. no. I had no visual reference for what Voldemort looked like. And yet, when you see Ray Fine in this movie, you just think, oh, that yeah, that, that's they it. They got it. That's, they nailed that's who it. He, is. Yeah. He, he would have no skin pigment. He would have no nose, like weirdly. He, just nostril just, slits. Yeah. I, it's so, it's like gillyweed for the nose. Um, it's just so <laughs> interesting how perfect they nailed it. And um, that's one of my favorite things. So, so they come face to face, and Voldemort says, it's time I'm going to kill you now. I'm going to kill you, Harry Potter. I'm going to destroy you. <laughs> After tonight, no one will ever again question my powers. After tonight, if they speak of you, they'll speak only of how you begged for death. And I, being a merciful lord, obliged. But it doesn't go exactly as planned. No, the wands, the wands connect. Some ghosts pop out, and uh, Harry manages to escape um, via port key, Accio port, port key. key. And then I think it's just time to move on to disaster number one. Everything that happens after. <laughs> <laughs> Essentially, this part of the movie is haunting. 
because Harry returns with Cup and Cedric's body, and for a moment, the band starts up. People clap and Nobody cheer. Nobody realize what's wrong. They just think maybe Cedric's tired or something. And then Floor screams, and I'll never forget her scream. See, it's funny that it's Floor's scream for you, because for me, it's Amos Diggory's cries. Oh, yeah. Well, My that, that's boy! Oh, Damn, this podcast got real. I know. But yeah, I mean, it's just devastating. It's the worst thing. I mean, you, you don't want to see a Hogwarts student killed. You don't want to see Harry's friend killed. But this... There's a lot here because this is the first time J.K. Rowling does this for her children readers. And if we're going to talk about the fact that these seven books are escalating in maturity, um, you know, you bring up a good point uh, that the very first thing we see in this book, in this movie, is a death. But it but doesn't bear one, any resonance. It doesn't, no, that one's you know, easier to take because we don't really know who this character is. Also, he's an older man. He's right. somebody we haven't spent time with here it's a Hogwarts student. It could have easily been Harry. And watching Cedric die is almost like watching Harry die. He was so close to that right. himself. But it's also enough of an emotional distance. Like, I, I never cried, you know, that Cedric died. Um, there was gravity I, to it. I did. Well, yeah, I know you crushed on him. <laughs> like, but like, yesterday I but was there crying was, <laughs> about this. But there's gravity to it. It's just enough to ease a kid in so that... This kid isn't scarred or running to his mother because this character just got killed in this book. It's kind of the perfect amount of knowing this character and not. I think that was pretty genius. Being uh, attached, but not necessarily too attached. So the rest of this sort of wrap up is that, as everyone realizes, um, it's Moody who pulls Harry away uh, in the film and into his office. Unfortunately, Hermione notices. We get the reveal... Because Moody has finally run out of Polyjuice Potion. Moody shows his cards. He accidentally brings up the graveyard. And then he turns back into Barty Crouch Jr. Now, I recognize we didn't quite get into who Barty Crouch Jr. is and Barty Crouch Sr. But um, Barty Crouch Sr. is is the this ministry guy who is Percy's boss. And he's here on behalf of the ministry to help oversee the Triwizard Tournament. And his son turns out to be a Death Eater. And he kind of disavowed him self from from his son yeah barty crouch senior sent barty crouch jr to azkaban unbeknownst to him barty crouch jr escapes from azkaban comes to hogwarts taking apologies potion to look like mad eye moody and he's the one who's been setting up this tournament for harry to get ahead move forward in all the tasks and eventually to get to the port key where voldemort's going to face him he is the person behind everything yeah there are some loopholes here the Polyjuice Potion, you can change age, sex, and race. You can't change species. Um, but I wonder what that means about, like, magic eyes. <laughs> because the eye clearly still works. Yeah. Um, but It's pretty gross watching that one pop out at the end. But I never, I never really got the logistics of... <sighs> it's kind of like, why did it have to be moody, necessarily? Unless... Maybe they, they just saw the opportunity there. Yeah, but it's like, wouldn't it have been easier if Barty Crouch Jr. was Professor Sprout? (laughs) Maybe it had something to do with, well, Sprout definitely would have been more under the radar, but maybe because people weren't as familiar with Moody, they're less suspicious. You know, something that I thought about while rewatching is, wouldn't Dumbledore have noticed that his friend was not quite? Right, you would think Dumbledore's a little more perceptive. Right, Um, he's very savvy. One thing I really never loved about the, not the twist of it all, but... The fact that, you know, we actually came to like this version of Moody throughout the book um, and throughout the movie. But 
when we get into book five, six, seven, when Moody is now just part of the gang, he's part of the Order of the Phoenix. He helps transport Harry. Uh, he's not the Moody we know. Yeah, you know it's what a I mean. Odd. He, I mean, granted, he is written the same way. So all those gruff tendencies. He's warm, but he's he's kind of brusque a little bit. Th- he's still like that. So Rowling kept it consistent, but like. You don't know Harry, and Harry doesn't know you. And and so there's a whole year's worth of a relationship that never happened. And I always thought that was just a big tragedy, that they never really did get to know each other. At the end of the Triwizard Tournament, there is indeed some good news. Harry wins, and he gives his winnings to the Weasley brothers, which is the sweetest thing. Because again, underrated friendship, Harry and Fred and George. For sure. They are not just Ron's brothers, they are Harry's friends first and foremost which I love. Bagman flees, Ludo Bagman, who wasn't in the movie, but he got deep in some debt and now he's gone. Mm -hmm. Voldemort's back. Nobody believes Harry, but uh, there's still a nice funeral um, at Hogwarts. And I really think they should have taken control of the situation and just really kind of leaned in that Voldemort is back. But now we set ourselves up. Dumbledore announces it to the school. He does, but I wish it, it went further. You know, um, right. because all these kids now go home and they're brainwashed by the Daily Prophet and their parents to believing, no, Harry lied, which is just devastating because Absolutely. this sets us up for a really angsty book five. But before we get to Order of the Phoenix, we have to finish up Goblet of Fire with a double whammy interview. First, we have costume designer Jenny Tamim, who's going to tell us all you need to know about the costumes of Harry Potter, as well as Victor Crumb himself, Stanislav Ayanevsky to tell us what it means to be a Bulgarian Quidditch player in this day and age. We have Jani Tamim here with us today, um, and we're going to talk to you about Harry Potter costumes. We just want to ask, you know, you put so much work into the film, starting with Prisoner of Azkaban all the way through the end of Deathly Hallows Part 2. Yes, and, and also the two, the two parks, the, the two attraction parts, you know, Orlando. Yeah, you know, so Universal. I did, I did a lot. I, yes, I did a lot for yeah. Harry Potter. What is so? What is the first costume that that does come to mind? I mean, do you have a, an immediate snapshot that you that you think of? Yes, well, you know, when I started with Alfonso, we were very much. We really had decided to make a film for for teenagers, where teenagers could recognize themselves, and not a children's film. Or we were doing a very realistic uh, fantasy film. And it was very important that Harry was their hero, that he was dressed up like them, that he was a urban boy, uh, a boy that you could see in the street. And then that way he would be very close to every single teenager. It would really be their hero and they would associate to him. And, And that was the first thing that I did. I changed completely the look of um, of um, Harry Potter, and um, I dressed him a little bit more edgy, very cool, and that was immediately a, a, a big success. The same with uh, with Hermione. I mean, Ron was different because he was playing um, the sort of a, what I said, the sort of Montessori kid, you know, the one that is his mother, the the. The, the the Bohemian family one, you know, that his mom is still making his mm-hmm. clothes, and then 
and dress him up. So he was never a, a, a hero. He was even the anti-hero. But because fashion is never something that you can understand fully, his costume became very successful and were even copied. So you never know <laughs> why. <laughs> but, sure. <laughs> you know this this sort of like is sort of. He was also by himself a very cool kid. So he made everything looking uh, a lot uh, better than it was. And, and then, you know, I was always so sorry after everything. I was saying, oh, one day I will dress you like a little prince. And he said, well, I'm really happy. <laughs> and, you know, and, he had, and he had those those sweaters and those... those so many sweaters. And all, it was all, always very... Uh, lots of sweaters. Well, you know, they are in Scotland and Scotland is always raining and cold. So this, the sweater was the, the, the look <laughs> that weather. was so important. You know, it's no summer over there, <laughs> so that was important. And then I, I, I used to, I use lots of wood because they were. Uh, I, I, I use a lot of, uh, even in the modern world, uh, a, a lot of the wizard uh, um, uh, elements. So lots of woods. So they all had. Um, um, not sweater, but they had sweatshirt with hood, they had uh, coat with hood, they had uh, pointed pocket. I mean, I, I did use, even in their modern, we used to make them to make it look like a sort of wizardy fashion by adding some elements, uh, you know, pointed, horn, animal uh, designs, you know, I mean, that it was always looking slightly, slightly, uh, I mean, different. Different, but in a way that 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 you could still that you could still recognize yourself in them, but um, slightly edgy. So, if yes. you if you like a hood in your costume, you must have loved any time you could have done like a Death Eater or um, a Dementor. You know, like what yes. did you like dressing the bad ones? Because you know the Death Eaters, we we grew up into the Death Eaters. Death Eater appears first you talk about it and you talk about it and then you see them you know what i mean they, they were that was an, an element which was introduced for almost four five films and then they came and they came and then i remember that in the in the fourth film they they had a different form than the final form it, it took us a, a, a while to really design them and bring that element of fright but also sort of history and in the same time, glamour, because they had to be glamorous. It's a glamorous, powerful army, you know, it's a satanic army. So, I mean, although we don't mm -hmm. use that word, but it's, you know, it's, it's the, the army of the, of the, of the bad. So it, it had to have a certain, a certain glamour, of course, because your enemy should also be glamorous. And then, and then we also wanted to, to, um, uh, to, to bring sort of, I shouldn't say Nazism, but, extreme right feeling in them you know so that's why we had the black and then um, and then a little bit of autism and then it, but it, it took some time so we had the mask we, we designed the mask and then when the mask were done we, it was very good because it had a sort of anonymity and the same time uh, looks because they were in silver and then so they were frighteningly beautiful, which is what we try to achieve with the Death Eater, because we, we, we wanted the kid also to buy Death Eater costumes and play the Death Eater, you know, because 
in a, not everybody is also need to have glorious badges because the badges is a part of the story and then you know everybody likes a good everybody badge. does <laughs> we certainly do yeah. totally uh, that, those were the world of uh, of bellatrix you know, and Abuela Carter, she said, oh, I'm so happy to be here. But she loved being Bellatrix and she loved her costume. And she said, it's so, it's so nice being a badge. is a lot more sexy than being just a Right. And girl, she looks very you know? chic, too, in those costumes. Um, and we'll definitely want to get into Bellatrix yeah. and other baddies a little bit more. But, you know, first, we kind of want to go back to Prisoner of Azkaban quickly. And in that film in particular, um, Harry and Ron and Hermione spend almost half of the film in the same costume. So how do you, knowing that, how do you go about choosing those costumes, knowing they're going to go through so much action and so much screen time? It was torture? It was, you know, it was a real torture because they always a tree of them. So when you think that you nail one and then you nail the other, and then, oh my God, the third one, he has to pass perfectly in the middle (laughs) without making any concession. So the minute we had, so it was always harder. We all, I always started by Hermione. She had to look good. Yeah. She's a girl, okay? She's a girl. So I put her in pink because I thought that, you know, it's not that pink is the color of the girl, but also in the in the mist of Scotland, that pink was very mm, fresh. Right. I love that. And you could see it everywhere. So that was very important. So I started with the pink of Hermione. And after that, I thought, well, Harry, it can be in dark blue or in gray. Harry is not really a problem. And then what are the color of, uh, of Ron? And Ron is brown and beige and orange. Those are these colors. So um, then the, the triangle was established. And then it took us a lot of time to find the right beige next to the pink. I mean, it was it was really a nightmare because, you know, when you do, when you have 25 costumes, you can always miss five. But when you just have one, you better be right. And and also, I knew, I mean, it was, no, it was like, oh, no pressure. I know it's going to be the poster. <laughs> but I mean, so I was, I was, I was so, it was, it was really, it was really hard work. And then it all come together and it looks so normal. You think, oh, yeah, of course, you know, this is it. Yeah. <laughs> and it looks like... Um, it always have been like that. Totally. But it wasn't. It also, wasn't I always loved Hermione's little rainbow belt in uh, in Prisoner of Azkaban. But but I, I can tell you that we dyed that, that pink to get oh. the right pink. It's 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 dyed. We didn't buy it. It's dyed. Everything that you see has been dyed to get the right colors. Totally. And also, we had to find seventeen or twenty of it because it was shot with two or three units and lots of doubles. So. It was so hard <laughs> to finish by making it. I mean, the problem around those kids' costumes were huge. But alas, you know, I mean, but alas, hopefully, which is really wonderful, is that you, you forget about it, the minute that you see them together, and they are such a wonderful trio. Another costume we wanted to ask about is Hermione's dress at the Yule Ball and Goblet of Fire. Um, That's sort of taken on, it's sort of a fan favorite, I would say. I've seen many replicas of it. Yeah. Um, what was your process like creating that? It had to be such a standout. That's really the moment I think when Ron realizes how beautiful she is. Talk about creating that. And do you are you yes. aware of the fandom that it has? Yes, yes, yes. It was uh, again a lot of pressure on that dress because uh, I think that is the first time you see her with a skirt, with a dress. Oh. You always see her like you know yeah. being with a, with 
with a trouser, he never saw her in anything else. And suddenly he realized that she has legs, <laughs> she has a waist, you know, <laughs> she, has, she has a female body. And that's what I wanted to address, who sort of, uh, of softly bring that body. You know, I couldn't have something really too tight because it's a sweet 16 dress. It's, a, it's, it's the first time that for herself also, she puts it on and she thinks, oh my God, I'm a girl. I mean, for, for, for her, it was actually for, for both of them, they, they, they realized that they are a girl and a boy. What they didn't know before, before they were pals and suddenly they are different. And I thought I need something a little bit form hugging, but not too much. And I wanted again, you know, the ping, but I thought if it is all ping, it's going to be like Miss Piggy, which is not good. So I better put some, some shade, you know, some shade from ping to mauve to dark. And I had those, uh, those chambres. And then I wanted something who move because she's going to dance with another boy. So I wanted her, you know, to, I wanted the fabric to move a little bit. And then, you know, little by little, we designed it. And then, um, I, I wanted that dress to be the dream of every girl without going into uh, a stupid Cinderella thing because she's still a little witch, you know. So it had to be a little bit more pointed. So I had those points like that. Mm. Um, took time, but everything takes time, you know. But I mean, when, when I saw it on her, I thought, yeah. yes, that's totally. how my name. Uh, Jenny, I have another question. Um, the Harry Potter cast is known for having these incredible British actors, really a who's who of... of uh, Anyone who can oh, act. Wonderful. Who, wonderful. Who, was, uh, who were you most excited to dress and who was also most excited to kind of play around in this world? You mentioned Helena Bonham Carter was really excited to be Bellatrix. Was there anyone else that comes to mind? Do you know, do you know what, was, what was incredible, you said, was they all were because that was the beauty of the thing. They came and because of their amazing talent, they gave to every character a deepness which you can just dream of an English theater actor, you know, an English star, but English stars are always theater actors. For instance, you know, when I did Voldemort, I think maybe Voldemort is my, is my best experience because Refine is a, is, a, is a legend. And then he was playing Voldemort, you know, which is the bad, eh? the, 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 the puissance, the power of, the, of, the, of being bad, you know, the, the essence of, of, of of everything which is the worst in that world. So uh, it was very difficult. So I thought, well, I have to do a spirit. And the green was because of the sleeve ring. So I thought I'm going to do green, but I don't want to have him in black because that's too banal and the decitor will be black. So I want the, the sleeve ring green, which is a part of the story, a part of a, uh, the universe of, uh, of J.K. Rowling, of the school. It brings the story of the school and the story of the books back. So I took those greens. So again, I use some chambre because it gives a faded uh, idea, but also it brings a little bit more life and more movement. And then I started with those silk, a lot of layers of silk. Because the man is also a spirit, like Dumbledore, I use the same for Dumbledore, the seal for Dumbledore, because both of them, they might be huge personality and character, but they shouldn't be tangible. They are hairy, both of them, because they're very spiritual sort of person. And that's why, and for, for Dumbledore and for him, I use the silk. But for Voldemort, I went further and I gave those incredible different weight of silk and 
he used them brilliantly. I mean, the way he used those sleeves, uh, I know that the, the, his, his, his wardrobe boy was was crazy because the sleeves were going up and down and they had to be right. kept in the same. I mean, it was like, oh my God, because I had like a half and the sleeves. But <laughs> the effect is, tra- I know you have no idea because they had to be for the continuity on the same high all the time. So I mean, that, was, that was a nightmare. But the effect is fantastic. How we use that when he points, you know, it's incredible. And when he moves and when he's, 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 he's grandiose, really. I mean, the same with that amazing actor who died, you know, uh, um, what's his name? Oh, Snape. No, oh, no, Alan, Alan Rickman. <laughs> Snape, Alan, Alan Rickman. Alan Rickman, you know, he had that cape. And when you have been doing Shakespeare for years, you know how to use a cake. You know, that's the, that's the big prestige of those, of those English actors. So I know that at a certain moment, you know, Alan Rickman is running into those, those boy toilets and he see, uh, and he see one of the boys in, in blood on the floor. And then he just turn and he, and he bend on the boy. And then every single time that he was bending, you know, the cape was exactly falling around him perfectly. You know, after, <laughs> you know. And I think that you must learn that at Radha. You must learn how to turn with the cape and have it perfectly displayed around you. You know, I think this is something that just an English actor can give. And that was Alan Rickman. Take after take. Well, you've talked a lot here about sort of the attitude that these actors brought to their costumes, but did they bring any sort of, you know, accessories or oh, yes. or physical clothes? Oh yes, oh yes. I was I was talking about Refine. I mean, he he, he he was he was walking with his things and he was trying and he was and he was moving with it and asking for for more volume, more weight. Yes, yes. And Elena, I mean, Elena Bonacarte, same thing, you know. The corset was never tight enough <laughs> because she wanted to feel the power and the craziness. And, uh, and no, 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 no. They were all very involved. And even Rissifans, you know, with, it, with this crazy thing when we started putting the embroidery of all the designs of his daughter on the, you know, Rissifans, he's playing... Um, um, the father of uh, Xenophilius, love good, yeah. Yes, I mean we put on the on the front of his of his coat all the the design the, the embroidery designs of his daughter because she was designing and if you look at the costume from close you will see every single piece is is is, is one design that she did but she was quite arty herself. And then we put that as, as embroidery in sort of pieces, you know, like she was making him little designs, little embroidery, and then we applied them, we applied them on the coat. And then he was so pleased with that because he felt that he, he was really a dad. And then and then I remember going to see him and he was shooting another film in Spain and then and then I, I, I put some things on him, sort of create the costume and then he walked up and down and then he said, put that on your telephone and show David, yes, that's how I'm going yeah. to play it. <laughs> And I, I need I need that half coat. I need to turn. I need the the empty net. I need those shoes. You know. And it was already you know by his walk and his attitude, uh, sort of defining his costume. What did you What did you learn in this ten years? I mean, you're such a seasoned costume designer, but a challenge like this, going through eight films or seven films, you know. You know, if somebody would have said to me when I started, I started the first one with Alfonso. And he took me in. And, and, you know, I thought I'm just going to do one. And halfway, 
I was asked by David Hammond for the second one. And I thought, oh, yeah, 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 this is very nice. You know, the, the number four is very nice. Yes, yes, I would like to do it. And after number four, I thought I will not do another one because I was always doing one other film in between. And after number, I remember number four, I was doing Children of Men with Alfonso again. And, and then David yet asked me for number five. And then I went to do number five. And I think when I was on number five, I knew that I had to do it in the end. <laughs> that I was going to do it in the end. Totally. But I, I did not unroll for 10 years. <laughs> it, progressively, uh, organically, it, it, it became that. But I also knew that uh, uh, I was also finishing with the kids. You see what I'm saying? That yeah, was absolutely. One, one thing was, was, was closing, and that was that, you know because I had spent 10 years with Harry Potter and that was enough. But for, for all of us, for all of us, it was, the, 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 the chapter was closed, you know? Yeah. What, did, you, did you have a, what would you say is the signature costume you've had? Um, I mean, could you, could you pinpoint one as the signature Harry Potter costume? He, well, the, the signature of, of Harry Potter costume is, is the gown. That's the first thing that I did when I changed. I changed that gown. I put the black gown with the hood. Uh, the, the hood turned as an S, if, if you look at it. The, the hood has the same shape than the, than the branding on his, on his forehead. So that was really my signature, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I just wanted to have them looking like little wizards, all of them, with this black coat with the hood, with that S hood on the back. So I think that that is what will stay my signature but but if i have to think about you know which costume i I prefer of all you know like like which costume i had i thought was the best costume i should say i really love voldemort and 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 bellatrix Mm. because I think I could not have done better for Voldemort. You know, you have the feeling everything I could have done it differently. But you know, like I'm thinking, Umbridge, Professor Umbridge, in Pink was also brilliant. I mean, there were so many things which were brilliant. But yeah. I was just thinking, uh, like from my heart, you know, uh, 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 it's always so hard to represent the the devil. And I think I did a Voldemort, which was extremely you understand the man and I think that yeah I think it, it, it's a good costume <laughs> it's hard to talk about so, so. you can clap yourself on the back exactly. was it was it was perfect because it, it was exactly I think what I think it's the it's what it carry the best um, the best idea of uh, of the author mm-hmm. I think that is what J.K. Rowling meant when she when she saw him. I think he's a very good friend. but but it's always hard to talk about your 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 own work. You know, right. there were there were there were thousand w- wonderful costume and expression, and you know, we had a great time doing it. Well, thank you for revisiting Memory Lane with us. Uh, we Aww. really appreciate it. You did stellar work, and it's an honor to chat with you about Aww. it all. We appreciate you Yeah, calling. thank you very much, Shani. This has been wonderful. Okay. Well, I'm happy that you have. <laughs> it was really nice talking about wonderful memories. Thank you. It was so nice chatting with you, too. Okay. Thank you so, so, so much. <laughs> Bye-bye. Now, because Goblet of Fire is so long... We thought it's only fair that we do two interviews for this book. So we got on the line with one of our favorite characters in Goblet of Fire, Victor Crumb, 
Please welcome to this podcast, everybody, Stanislav Ianevsky. Hey, Stan. Hi, is it Morty? Yes, it is. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Um, yeah, thanks again, man. We pre- really appreciate it. Uh, no problem. We're just going to launch right into it. Can you tell us, what do you recall about your audition? What stands out to you and what sort of scenes did you read? Yeah, well, I didn't really have auditions. I was uh, spotted in school. I was late for an afternoon registration, and um, well, the school um, invented this thing so people wouldn't run away from uh, lessons. <laughs> and I was late for, um, for the afternoon afternoon one because we had uh, one in the morning, one in the night. I mean, uh, afternoon. And I was late for the afternoon uh, registration period, and um, I was walking through the hallway of the school, and then uh, I met one of the casting agents of the film, and then she asked me to go to a casting later on during the day. I was doing the activities, so I went with my uh, sports clothes. They cast the 30 best Victor Crumbs, and I was uh, invited to go um, to that casting. It was like a special one. Uh, I wasn't allowed out of school, so I didn't go. (laughs) They weren't very pleased about that. (laughs) And then um, they uh, casted the best 10 Victor Crumbs. I was one of them, apparently. So they called me again and they said, um, you know, you need to come, the 10 best have chosen you one of them, so blah, 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 you know, you need to meet the director and all. So I was like, okay, um, I wasn't allowed out of school again, so I didn't go to that either. And um, obviously, you know, they called me and they were pretty angry. So um, they sent a car to pick me and my housemates at the time up and they drove us to the studios. We went straight to the... Um, you know, to the studios. I met Emma Watson for the first time. She was the first person I actually met. Then, um, you know, I met uh, Mike Newell, the director, and we had like a small casting, I guess. Um, He made me, you know, um, do various scenes, like imagine different things, you know, change my moods. And then he said, um, you know, don't put your hopes up so high. Um, You were brilliant, but other people to um, audition. And uh, we'll let you know if you know, things happen uh, in two weeks' time. Wow. And then one week passed, and um, they called me, and they said, uh, yeah, we would really like you um, to to come uh, on board, uh, you know, our ship. We would like you to play with the crumb. We hope to say yes. And I was like, yeah, sure, why not? So <laughs> that's how it happened. You said you didn't read the books before being cast, and you basically found out what was happening in the story while you were on set, right? So were you, were you ever, like, unsure whether Crumb was going to you know, survive the next task or, you know, what what plot twist was about to happen? Uh, well, the thing is, um, I had no idea what was going on. You know, um, people were freaking out in school. I, I was in a college, so 700 people. And, um, you know, the, most of them knew what Harry Potter was. I was one of the few who didn't. And um, they were freaking out. They were all saying, oh, this is so huge. You know, Victor Crumb, he's the best Quidditch, um, you know, seeker in the world. He's this, he's that, he goes out with Hermione in the library, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, <laughs> I don't know, it, but all right. So, um, you know, once um, once I got casted, I sort of, you know, I had to get familiar with the books. I read them. I saw the, the first three films. Um, you know, I read um, my book. I studied Victor Crumb in a way. And then, um, you know, I was contacting um, different people to tell me what they expect from the character. So I tried to... Um, portray him the way you know fans really wanted it. And what challenge was the most difficult or interesting to shoot? Um, well, interesting. Everything was interesting, but the most challenging must be the underwater stuff. 
I mean, obviously, you know, the flying thing with um, with the broomsticks wasn't um, the most comfortable thing for, um, you know, a part of the body. But, <laughs> yeah, you would understand me as a man. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, you know, the underwater definitely was the most demanding, like, physically. And, you know, you, you don't see much. You have to keep your eyes open, act as if, you know, just uh, you're in a normal environment. You know, we had to do like uh, underwater special training. We got certificates for diving. I had to go with the national coach of uh, Britain for, um, you know, those diving in the, the high jumps they do from Olympics. I had to go train with him because I had a scene where I had to jump off the ship. So um, that was very, I wasn't very keen, but yeah, it was in the scenes. So uh, I had to do it. Stan, I want to get into Victor and Hermione a little bit because they seem. I think, like an unlikely pair. I mean, do you think they make a good match? What do you think of their relationship? Well, I think they make a good match, yeah. She's, um, you know, she's like uh, the little outsider of the group. I mean, in Hogwarts, she's like the nerd um, type of girl, always reading books, knowing everything. Um, and he's, uh, you know, they are the two opposites. Like, she's, if she's the South Pole, he's the North, North Pole, and they, they attract each other. So uh, I think they could make a good, um, good match. Back in the seventh film, uh, David Yates, you know, was the director, and um, he saw, um, well, obviously we knew each other really well with Emma, so uh, we just started, you know, enjoying our time together on set, and then he invented, actually, uh, a new story that wasn't in the book, like a love triangle between myself, I mean, Victor Crumb, Hermione, and, and Ron, but that was cut out the film because it obviously didn't fit with them. Um, all the horrible things that happened <laughs> in the last weeks. Wait, just so did you film? You filmed a bunch of scenes like with Ron, just sort of jealous that you were back in the picture. Yeah, we did a, a new dance scene. I sort of stole her from uh, Ron. You know, she remembered our old times. We had a new dance. I was like, you know, Victor was all, um, you know, acting like a gentleman again. Happy to see her. She was happy to see him. Ron was, you know, sitting at the side, all jealous. And then Victor took her to the dance floor, did a new dance, like we had to learn it. But, you know, unfortunately, it was cut out this, you know, so in the end. So. It's just like uh, Yule Ball 2.0. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty much like the Yule Ball. It was Fleur's wedding, so, um, you know, it sort of fitted, uh, you know, at first. And then they decided to cut it out. Yeah. Can I ask, I always wondered, like, the extent to which Hermione and Crumb actually, like, got on together, like, <laughs> like in Goblet of Fire. How serious do you think they ever really got? Um, I think it's their little secret. God knows. <laughs> well, they, they did enjoy it. I mean, it, it was obviously difficult for them two to understand each other. Um, you know, she would talk to him. He wouldn't really understand much. He would just sit and watch her, sort of observe and um, protect. You know, uh, maybe he was... Uh, you know, as being the world's best uh, Quidditch seeker, you know, obviously he had a big ego. So he would defend his um, beloved one. So <laughs> I don't know how far they could go. If the story from the seventh book that David Yates invented um, extended itself, then maybe they would have uh, gotten into uh, a fight with Ron, then Victor would obviously win and then, you know, <laughs> live happily on forever with uh, Hermione. <laughs> Yeah, what do you uh, what do you think Crumb is up to these days? I mean, yeah, has J.K. Rowling ever, I think, revealed what Crumb is is doing these days? Uh, well, he would uh, obviously be still engaged uh, or engaging himself with Quidditch. Probably, um, th there was actually a rumor that John Rowling was writing a new trilogy or would write one, 
where um, you know everyone would be grown up, and Victor would have been, uh, or would be, or will be. You know, God knows what will happen in the future. But um, he will come back at the age of 38, being uh, the coach of uh, one of the teams uh, of Quidditch in the World Cup, and um, you know he he's saying that he will win the cup. Uh, or he'll die, you know. By the time he dies, he'll win the cup at least once. So, uh, you know, I guess he'll be engaged with, um, you know, with Quillage, training little wizards, how to fly, catch the snitch and all. <laughs> Probably that. Maybe maybe he could go, you know, go on to be, like, on the dark side. Who knows? I hope not. Yeah, I mean, that, that would be another possibility, I guess. Fans, uh, you know, I've, I've been in contact with my fans on, you know, Instagram, everywhere. And yeah. uh, lots of them would like to see him going, you know, on the dark side, like becoming a death eater or something. So that's a possibility also, because he got hexed in the maze. So, um, you know, he could be drawn into the dark side. But then, you know, they can make up a story that, him being a dark wizard, he's actually a good wizard, destroying the darkness from within, you know. Totally. It's a whole crumb spin-off. I love it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, we can keep uh, on going <laughs> about stories about Elf forever. <laughs> Stan, what is your relationship like with the Potter series these days? I mean, you were just talking about fan encounters, but, you know, from your social media presence, it seems like you still have a love for the series. I mean, what is that relationship like? Oh, well, well with the cast, we try and stay in touch. We do um, all those uh, different events around the world where we, um, you know, sort of get together. We do talks, um, there are different events happening all the time. I mean, even now with um, this latest book that came out, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, I was invited to, um, you know, for the opening ceremony, giving out autographs. So we, we keep, um, you know, getting engaged all the time with the Harry Potter world. I mean, it's something that will stay forever with us, I guess. It's a really nice feeling. I mean, you know, Harry Potter is uh, it's such a wonderful series. It's global, and, uh, you know, we get newer and newer fans, um, you know, as years pass, because kids who are like five years now, they will be ten in five years, and they'll become fans of the series. So, they'll, you know, some of them will like Victor Crumb, and they'll become my fans, which is, you know, a, a great, a great thing to have. See them, you know, like different events when you see those little kids come up to you and they're like, oh, is this like the crumb? He looks a lot older now. <laughs> uh, well, Stan, we'll leave you with uh, this sort of last question. When you do think back to Goblet of Fire, what do you know that we don't? What's like a, a cherished memory you have um, behind the scenes that uh, you, you cling on to pretty hard? Oh, well, there are loads of memories and loads of things are unknown to the world <laughs> that we know. One of the things is um, we weren't allowed to take anything from set. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally nothing. You couldn't take, absolutely, even rubbish, you know, you couldn't take it with you. Um, I tried to steal, literally, I tried to take my wand, I mean, super hard. And every time I would hide it like in my uh, sleeve or my um, trousers, my boots, anywhere, they would come and find it. We all tried to, you know, steal our ones, but it didn't work out. Did you, I always wanted to know, did you hang with like the Durmstrang boys? Like, did it ever feel like there were the Durmstrang guys and then the Hogwarts kids and like the Bobaton girls? Like, did it ever feel like off camera there was like g- grouping? Oh yeah, absolutely, yeah. We were hanging out with the Durmstrangs. I was, uh, because 
the cast, we would get cakes, and I would get the whole tray and bring it to the Durmstrang to give it away <laughs> to them. They used to love me. I was like, um, you know, it, it became like a real school. I was like their um, big boy, you know, and um, they all supported me. We played football, you know, outside, we played games together. We had a games room. Uh, it was like, you know, three different schools coming together for real. I mean, we, we filmed it for like 11 months plus, so... Um, it was bound to happen, but yeah, we did have this. We were like the, you know, the strong Durmstrang. We had the, um, you know, the Durmstrang boys trying to hook up with the uh, <laughs> girls. Oh, we we need some details about that. Yeah, did that ever happen? Did that? Did anybody successfully uh, cross over? Oh, absolutely, yes. Care to expand on that? <laughs> it did happen because you know, um, some of the Durmstrang boys, um, they were at the uh, older age. I mean, I was like 20. So uh, it was all right. I mean, some of the other guys were um, 14, 13, 15. I mean, a bit too young for that stuff. But, you know, the older guys, yeah. Why not? Yeah, why, totally why not. Exactly. All right, Stan, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, you're, you're so much fun to chat with. And uh, we love Gobble of Fire. We love Victor Crumb. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good one. Okay, thank you. You too. Bye. Well, fair listeners, that's it for Goblet of Fire. Thank you for joining us. We finally, (laughs) we made it through Goblet of Fire. We're alive. We're happy you're here with us. Thank you for listening. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us a rating. Tweet us at Mark Snedeker or at C. Molly Smith. Or you can email us at binge at EW.com. And we will see you back here next week for episode five, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. Oh, and the guests we have. You don't want to miss this. Um... So much so, you should write an appointment in a quill on your hand. That was so cryptic. Yeah. I love it. Bye. Thank you, guys. Bye.